Aware Now, the official podcast for causes. Presented by Awareness Ties, Aware Now is rated O for original and organic content to raise awareness for the causes we're all tied to through personal stories and exclusive interviews. Tune in as we raise awareness a story at a time about topics that aren't always easy to talk about through conversations that are sometimes hard to have. Together, we are aware now. This is Pollinating with Purpose, an exclusive interview with AJ Dahia by Ellie McGuire. This is found in the World Edition of Aware Now magazine. Thank you so much, AJ Dahia, for joining us today as the Chief Vision Officer for the Pollination Project. Thank you so much for taking some time. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really grateful to be here with you. I'm grateful to have you. So let's just start right in with this. Um, some believe it will take the investment of millions of dollars to change the world. So far, even with billions spent, though, there's so much change that's needed. The Pollination Project is investing $1,000 a project, $1,000 a person at a time, uh, and seeing results of success. Can you speak for a moment about incremental impact and its potential to scale? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there's a there's an issue that we face in the world, which is all about our obsession with scale and big. And I think that's true also in the sector of philanthropy and social change. And the desire is that like everything needs a big ticket solution. Everything needs a broad approach that can be applied everywhere. And I think there's a place for that. There's a place for big philanthropy. And I think there's a, there are certain things where it makes sense to invest a lot of money to, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind is uh, in the world of COVID, of course, is ventilators, mm -hmm. that it makes sense to scale something like that up. But the scalability isn't, being obsessed with that isn't, isn't really necessarily an issue. But the focus on that in and of itself, I find is an issue because what you'll find is that a lot of people who are doing good in the world, um, it's not just limited to those who are the largest or the most well-funded organizations. Mm -hmm. um, not everything that's worth funding is something that's going to be scaled up. And what we can see, if you look, just you study history, you know, most of the social problems were solved uh, at the local level, at the grassroots level, at the community level. They were solved by neighbors in their own communities and. You know, if a community needed a new school, if it if it was experiencing some other sort of hardship, you know, your neighbors got together, your village got together, they knew you, they know you, they know what's going on, they, they want to extend themselves, they're not disconnected from the issue themselves. And so this idea of big philanthropy, I think is a it's a fairly new concept if you look at the span of time. And again, while I think it's important, there are certain issues that will require that sort of investment. Um, because it's very complex things. They take uh, a diversity of skill set, a lot of experience, and significant investment for certain issues. But I think there's many other problems that we can solve together. And I think in this way, you achieve more than just solving the problem. You, you achieve connection. You achieve community. You achieve resilience. And this, um, you preserve this sense of community responsibility. Like, so I have responsibility as an individual from my community. Uh, I have a responsibility within society. Now, if I think, well, all the problems are going to be solved by big investments, I don't necessarily think that's going to work for us as a society. Um, and I think also social change takes 
the best form when it's inclusive. And so our approach to philanthropy is a very unique one in that we offer seed grants to individuals directly. And so, you know, it doesn't sound all that profound, but in many ways it's revolutionary because you can see how infrequently that happens in the context of modern giving. People aren't really funded at that grassroots level, at the individual level. It is organizations and projects on a large scale. So, you know, what we've seen is when a community experiences social challenge, it's the people who are closest to the issues, the people from the community generally have the best solutions. And they tend to be able to deploy those solutions really efficiently and very quickly because, like I say, they have relationships, they understand the culture, uh, they already have existing networks of support and there's trust and social capital. So they're able to kind of get stuff off the ground. So, mm -hmm. you know, big philanthropy, I think it's, it's, it's a great thing. It's offered really huge wins for society in ways that small grants and direct giving can't. Yet, I think it's important to understand that there are also drawbacks to big philanthropy and trying to professionalize the business to doing good. Um, mm. You know, it creates this perception that that not everyone is able to make a difference. And I just don't believe that to be true. I think we're unconsciously mm. building a system that elevates organizations and um, big projects over and above civic engagement of individuals and that responsibility that we have as individuals. So I think there's a need for both approaches. I think uh, small grassroots interventions along with the broader solutions. Um, and, you know, when I speak to other foundations in the world about incorporating an approach that uplifts individual, individual action like we do, you know, a lot of them will ask the same question of like, how is it scalable? And I think there's a simple answer to that, which is it's, you scale it by adopting it yourself. I think there's this room for both and there's a need for both. Yeah. No, that's that's really profound. It doesn't have to be bigger to be better, you know? And yeah. um, I mean, wow. you know, small is beautiful. And, mm. you know, like I have, I have a three-year-old son and I'm just looking across my room right now and, you know, I have these paintings that if I showed it to anyone else, I think, oh, this is horrible. For me, this is the most precious thing in the world. It didn't cost a million dollars. It's not on like the finest of uh, canvas. It's on A4 office paper and, you know, his own squiggles. So small is also very beautiful. I think love is in the little things. It's not just the big things. Yeah. Oh, well, that's so true. So true. <laughs> Don't start making me cry already. I'm sick. <laughs> um, you know, um, we believe in people. So we invest in people. This statement by the Pollination Project speaks volumes. And again, got me a little teary when I first read it. <laughs> um, while there are those who invest in projects or products that promise financial return, your model is all about investing in people with the hopeful return of social positive impact. Um, can you share how your model is sustaining success, not only for your organizations, but success for these change makers as well? Yeah, we focus on people rather than just the project or the organizations because, you know, we truly believe that the human spirit is the largest untapped resource of social change. Uh, you won't have any change without human beings driving it forward. And in many of the cases, the projects that we support you know, they're driven by a passion and a love for the community and um, 
a passion and love that comes from individuals behind a project. And without them, the project is kind of nothing. You know, like really you, you invest in the people because you understand that the people are the ones who are investing in the project. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm just thinking coming out of a year of lockdowns and um, social distancing and so on and so forth, like our COVID-19 response last year is a real good example of this. I mean, the whole world was faced with, you know, pretty unprecedented challenge of this modern pandemic and our global network, they were really quick to act. They could, they could find and fund people uh, at the individual level all across the world who are best positioned to protect the most vulnerable members of their community. Um, and, you know, what we saw during that time is that each changemaker of ours well, not that they're our change because each change maker within our community, you know, on, on average, with a with a small grant, they were able to affect more than a thousand humans or animals um, with their projects. And you know, just with a thousand dollars, in some cases, actually five hundred dollars. You know, they deal with food aid, um, hygiene supplies. They provided community health education, masks, um, hand washing facilities, and so. You know, this highlights my belief that in many cases, the thing that makes a project successful isn't just the funding alone. I mean, you know, in many cases, no doubt, funding is a very important element, which is why we make grants. Hmm. But the, the component that I think really catalyzes a project to go beyond uh, the sum of its parts is the affirmation that the funding represents. And I think that's really, really important in our model. Um, you know, oftentimes we're the first people to say yes to someone. So this is someone who has a passion and a plan to change something that's affecting their community. And they often feel like they're kind of hopeless. They have nowhere to go to get support. And I think our grants are very symbolic uh, of belief. Like when we invest a grant in, in someone with a grant, we're not just investing a dollar amount. We're in investing the fact that we see them and we hear them and we believe in them and we we believe that they can make a difference uh, whoever they are wherever they're from whatever their background and i think that kind of approach helps people to perhaps see themselves in a different way too and so mm -hmm. when you give seed funding and belief the change makers they're able to activate the gifts that they have along with their sincere love for their community and their connections and their creativity and it's, you know, it isn't uncommon to see that additional support will then come from that, you know, because these people are really authentically uh, trying to lead a project that's community based. And so we know this from analyzing um, our grants that on average, uh, I believe it's somewhere like each one of our change makers is able to get about 125 hours of volunteer support for their projects as well. Wow. So, you know, the results that speaks to the power of people first funding you know this is this is very clear to us that it's not just the financial investment the financial investment is just one small component and rather it's an excuse to invest in other ways in people and that's an investment in love and an investment in belief and an investment in really uncovering the untapped potential that all of us have to make a positive difference in the world mm, that's... yeah so beautifully said and the fact that you just said that we all have this potential it's just identifying what that is and finding a space and a place to employ it yeah. um and, wow. you know, it goes back to what we were speaking about earlier that like you know sometimes you can go through the world and say someone should really do something about that like i live in san francisco mm -hmm. i've lived in 
you know, for my sins, I've lived in most major cities, well, a lot of major cities. And, um, you know, oftentimes I walk around and I see issues like, you know, especially here in San Francisco, there's a lot of people who are homeless and, you know, there's just a lot of suffering out there. And sometimes we can think, well, someone should do something about that. But hey, I'm someone. You know, you're, you're someone. Why should someone do it? Why, why not? Why not I do it? And why do I not feel the responsibility to, to do it? And I think a lot of that has to do with the stories that we learn over the span of time is that we don't have power. But I think power is, mm. is far greater than money. Right. It's far greater than an organization. Real power is within all of us. And that power is to see good in everything and to bring out the good in ourselves and uplifting others as well. Right. Make me cry again. <laughs> I don't know how I can have this conversation with you. Um, okay. So and so, San Francisco. Yes, and I and I hear you. Um, I I lived there for about three years before I, I moved uh, back here to Michigan. So, um, and you're right. I mean, to see it all over the place, and and you said it just so perfectly there to say someone should do something but hey i'm a someone well yeah. you know then we need to hold ourselves accountable yeah, yeah? i am someone right yeah. i am someone like i yeah. think if we've if we've learned anything over the last year or the last four years or the last five years or just the last modern span of time it's like we can't depend on anyone but ourselves mm -hmm. and by that what i mean is the collective self like yeah. who's going to solve our problems it's not the politicians it's not the corporations yeah it's you and i it's the communities it's us together we're the ones who we have that power we shouldn't give that power away to anyone in my opinion mm -hmm. no it's you're so true um you know having supported over four thousand grassroots change makers you've been part of a thousand stories like thousands of stories <laughs> positive impact um can you share one example one special story that stands out to you yeah the one that i mean there's so many of them that stand out every I, everyone is special because everyone did something you know and in the face of the world that we we look at today i mean that's that's an act of courage just to stand up and say i'm going to do something whether it's big or small but the thing that has really been on my mind um or stands out re in recent times is we as an organization when covid19 really hit the world and the world was shutting down we made a decision we met on a monday and the world was just shutting down and we decided hey we have to do something as well as an organization and so we we met on monday and by thursday we completely overhauled all of our process to just focus specifically on covid 19 relief i mean you know in the span of four days we completely changed our application process um, our funding criteria uh, we started a fundraising campaign to help support people all over the world and so one of the first grants that we funded in that COVID-19 um, effort really stands out to me. It was a doctor in Calcutta. Um, his name is Sandeep. And, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in India and I've spent a lot of time around Calcutta. And India itself, but particularly major cities, are very well known for um, large slums. And particularly in Calcutta, I think Calcutta has the largest slum in the world from what I understand. Slums also isn't the right word, but this is what we'll use because that's what they're commonly known as. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a situation like that, social distancing is actually a privilege, right? We may be here sitting, well, I have to stay right. in my house. I can't go to my favorite restaurant. The gyms are closed. 
Well, that's a privilege actually for us because a lot of people, they don't have that luxury. They, they live on top of one another. Um, and so Sandeep, who's a doctor from Calcutta, he, he looked at the recipe for hand sanitizer that the World Health Organization had put together. And so he had applied for a grant and um, he was going to buy the raw ingredients and train young people who lived in the slums to create this hand sanitizer and then to be able to distribute it around. And why this sticks out to me is, um, is, is because, you know, he, we could say there's a class difference here, firstly, right? He's a doctor, what does he care about what's happening in the slums? But no, he felt some, some pain that these people would not be able to get the support that they need. But more, more kind of interesting to me is that he didn't even apply for $1,000. Like our grant level is $1,000. All he applied for was $900 because that's all that he needed to make this work. He didn't even ask for the full amount of money. And um, so he did that. He, we, that was one of the first grants we made. We gave him $900. He brought the raw material. He trained like two or three young people, particularly marginalized youth in these slums, how to produce the hand sanitizer and then to distribute it to families um, in the slums. And I believe um, they served two and a half thousand families. They're not two and a half thousand people, two and a half thousand families with $900. <laughs> And you know, he could have asked for a thousand, but he just needed that 900 because that's what it would have cost him to buy all of the raw material that he needed. So that really stands out to me on a number of levels. You know, his success was possible because of his existing ties and his own um, volunteering in the slums and his passion for the community, his cultural knowledge, um, which helped him really guide the design of his project. And so all of us, we, you know, when we saw this project and the, the, uh, the application that came through, everyone, it was like a resounding yes um, because we knew that this is someone who probably would never get, like, he'd get laughed at in any other place in the world. I'm going to go and buy these raw materials and teach young people living in slums about how to make hand sanitizer. <laughs> Just give me $900. But look at the impact, you know, mm -hmm. two and a half thousand people, two and a half thousand families, sorry. So the number of people is, is more than that. So that really stands out to me because it's, it's in the indication of the power of small, right? We were talking about that earlier. It's a very mm -hmm. small thing. In many, in many people's objective view, right. but it wasn't very small. It made such a difference, huge impact. Mm -hmm. Huge impact, and and I love how you explain the fact that he only asked for nine hundred dollars. Yeah. The fact that he was looking at not was not what was it that he could get from you, but what did he need from you? Yeah, and driven <laughs> not by a sense of what I can get, but driven by a sense of what can I give. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. So he was he was orienting himself about I want to give this. It's going to cost me this much to give it. That's all I need from you. I don't need anything above and beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's um, that is profound. Thank you so much for that. Um, you know, I want to switch gears for just a bit here and uh, to a podcast. So I recently tuned into a podcast by the Sentience Institute, where you were the featured guest. And in this particular episode, you mentioned the issues that still exist after so much money spent, so many lives lost, so much work done, so much work done. And you speak to the fact that unless we do the work within, we won't see the change that we're seeking. So when it comes to sustainable impact, 
sustainable impact, something that will last, not be trendy for the moment that people will pay attention, but something that will last. Where do we begin? Well, I think everything begins with self-reflection. And, you know, there are a myriad of problems in the world. And I think people are trying to figure out, well, where, do my, where does my dollar have the most impact? So, you know, whether it's this issue or that issue or the other issue, a lot they continue to perpetuate society. And so if you really want to think about impact, for me, you know, who is it? I mean, what, what's causing all of this pollution and the, you know, global warming, whether you believe in it or not? Well, it's human beings. And who or what is causing all of this racism and oppression and uh, gender um, discrimination? Well, it's human beings. And who is, you know, keeping all of these animals in bad, terrible, horrific conditions and treating them so badly so that we can have something, well, people can have something nice to eat well, as human beings. And I think if you just go along the line, pick any issue that you want and you get down to the root of it, well, who or what is causing it? It's us as human beings. And so I think unless you, you tackle that aspect of any problem, you're never going to solve the problem. Human consciousness is the problem. The consciousness that thinks that I am the controller of this world and I can do whatever I want as long as it serves me or my people. I think you're going to run into problems. And so for me, self-reflection really is it's, it's the most important thing because if we can take honest inventory of our own hearts, of our own minds, of our own kind of behavior patterns and thought patterns, we start to see our own edges and we start to understand how little we really know. And we start to understand how imperfect we are. And, you know, the things that we see in the world that we dislike, that we want changed, if we self-reflect, we'll start to see where we give those things safe harbor within ourselves. If I don't want to see um, hate in the world, well, how much hate do I carry in myself? If I want to see a world that's more just, well, how much injustice is within me? If I want to see a world that doesn't discriminate, well, how much do I judge others? Right? Because... If you want to remove that from the world, you're also part of the world. Mm -hmm. It's all very well to try and clean it all up, but you're giving it a home within yourself. So I think that's where you have to begin. Um, because, you know, self-reflection, what it does, it makes us humble. It, it takes out this response um, that comes from the ego. Mm -hmm. And it allows us to shift from binary thinking towards meeting other people where they're at. Even if we think, you know... <laughs> They're different to us or we're, we're better than them in some way we start to see our shared humanity when we self-reflect um, because we realize maybe i fall short like the striving for the ideal is the ideal itself it's not reaching the ideal because we never will we're human beings right and if you ever meet anyone who says i'm you know i'm a perfect human being mm, you should run as far away as you can as quickly as you can <laughs> Or if anyone says, you know, I'm enlightened, like I, spirituality has been a long-standing aspect of my life since childhood, and I've spent most of my life um, immersed in spiritual practices. There's no such thing as an enlightened person, in my opinion. What you can have, we're imperfect beings. We're unenlightened in so many aspects, but we can have perfect moments. Mm. And we can have enlightened moments. And the more that we can have moment by moment, those experiences and that approach to life, the better off we'll be. But that starts with self-reflection. Because when there's self-reflection, you're able to see all of your own flaws and you'll start to see that they mirror perhaps the things that you don't like in the world. Mm. 
and you can move from self-reflection to self-acceptance. I accept that these are things within me that need to change. I accept that there's things within me that are nice and good that I want to unleash even more. If mm. I'm able to accept that in myself, perhaps I can accept the shortcomings in someone else. Perhaps I can stop othering them. Perhaps it moves away from me against you to us together fighting against the things within both of us. And so when you have self-reflection, which will lead you to self-acceptance and the acceptance of others, then we can have self-improvement. And that means self-improvement just not for me, but for everyone else that I encounter. How can we help one another in our journeys of self-improvement? So I think you start with self-reflection um, to really shine a light on, well, what is it within me that needs to change? What is it in the world that I dislike that I am also giving shelter to? And let me accept right. that I'm doing that. <laughs> right. And then now let me work towards not doing that and improving the condition of my own consciousness, the condition of my heart. Knowing full well if I do that, being part of the world, I also make the world a little bit better as well. Right. Wow. No, that's um, so reflect, accept, improve. Well, you certainly answered my question, where do we begin? Um, <laughs> and it's, it's the beginning, it's the beginning, it's the middle, it's the end. Mm -hmm. And it's a continual cycle. It, it's not like, okay, I did that. I did the, the self-reflection part. I did the self-improvement. I got the t-shirt and now I have it in a box. I'll put it on my, on my mantle. No, it's like, it's, it's a continual cycle. Moment by moment, day by day, we continue to go down that journey, down that path, because um, there's a lot within all of us that is kind of hidden in the shadows and we have to uncover it more and more. <laughs> well, and I love you talking about the, the perfect moments, you know, and to humbly say, no, I'm not an enlightened person. I've had enlightened moments, mm. um, you know, and that's just, again, just to give, to give grace to ourselves, to say like, we, we're not ever going to be there. We're going to work toward that. And that's okay. You know, yeah. um, it's just about making the journey, not, you know, reaching the destination, as they say. And um, that's right. There is no there to get to. We, we are here right now and we're going to be yeah. here. And it's about making the most of being here rather than trying to get there. Right. Wow. No, that's really. Um, you've given me a lot to think about tonight, I have to say, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> One more thing before I let you off the hook here. I really want to know, um, before you got into the Pollination Project, before that began, you were a monk for nearly a decade. In that time, I can't begin to imagine the number of insights that you gained. Could you share what was one of the most powerful that you learned that you're able to now applied to the beautiful work that you do yeah i you know as far back as i can remember i just had a deep spiritual calling and um i largely thank my mother for that my mother my parents were both from india and um, grew up in villages in the outskirts of delhi and you know simple humble people had moved to england before i was born in fact i often say this i was uh, my mother was pregnant with me in india so i was cultivated in india but i was born in britain so I don't know if I got the best of both worlds or the worst of both worlds, but nonetheless, that's what happened. Um, and so like for their cultural connection, they would visit a temple that was close to our house because they, we didn't have any other family. And that was their, their, that was their connection to where they were from and their culture and their background. And um, 
you know, with most other kids, you'd have to drag them in. And with me, you'd have to drag me out. Like I was just something about the place and, you know, 30 years or so later, I still can't put words to it. There was just something that captured me about the place. And so as I got older, I realized, wow, you, people live here and they, they live in this monastery and they, they just serve here full time. And that became a very appealing thing to me. And what I saw as the alternative was what I like to call the world of exploitation. Mm. means that you know and we, we learn this right you go to school you get good grades you get the job you get the money get the house get all the, and it's all about what can I get what can I get like the world is my place to exploit as much as I want so I can have some enjoyment and some satisfaction and when you enter that world of exploitation what you enter is a world of competition as well right they say you know, it's a dog eat dog world mm. well there's always a dog that's bigger and badder than you <laughs> right so even if you're very good at exploiting, someone else is now exploiting you too. And ultimately we're all exploiting nature. And I didn't really think that was an appealing avenue for life. <laughs> and so uh, I was just Im impressed and inspired by people who had dedicated their life to serving and that, you know, they'd given up everything. They'd given up exploit. I'm opting out of this, this um, system. I'm not playing that game. And I'm renouncing in fact, I'm renouncing these things. I'm renouncing possessions. I'm renouncing taking things. And um, and it's not the most comfortable life if you do it properly. <laughs> it's, you know. And so, you know, you know, so you leave the world of exploitation, you enter the world of renunciation. And for many years, it served a purpose. It gives you a real grounding. And what I came to realize after some time, actually, is that neither one of those is the ideal. Neither to take nor to like shun everything away but this middle path which I call the path of dedication mm. that what I renounce actually I, I'm not going to exploit this world but what I renounce is the tendency to think I'm the lord and master of everything that everything here is for me and I can use it however I want rather everything is here for me to dedicate in a spirit of service to make the world a better place for myself for others for everyone human non-human you know mm -hmm. And so that was the lesson I learned, actually, that true renunciation is actually not in found in giving stuff up, but the proper utilization of things in the spirit of service, selfless service. I'm going to utilize everything, whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's fame, whatever it may be, I'm going to utilize it not for my own advancement, but for the advancement of all of us as a society, for the advance, advancement of compassion, for the advancement of joy in the world. And actually, you know, after that, understanding of everything's there to be dedicated you know I move from the world of dedication to the world of desperation mm -hmm. that this is a desperate need there's a sense of urgency here we have to do this we have to um, we have to be desperate to serve we have to be out there looking for the opportunities to serve mm -hmm. that desperation starts to propel us forward like I, I'm desperate to see the world change and be better for other people there's a desperation that I feel around that there's a desperation that I feel about alleviating the suffering of others Mm -hmm. Many years ago, I think I may have been 17, 18 at the time, I, you know, interested and trying to practice spiritually and I'd meditated for many years. I started meditating maybe it was like 13 or 14, again, thanks to my mother. And um, I remember asking someone, how do I know if I'm making progress? Right? I'm doing this thing and I'm, like, and I'm an all or nothing kind of person. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. So hours every day I'm putting into this thing, like, how do I know if I'm making progress? And the answer wasn't this esoteric thing of, well, this big light will shine in your 
forehead and then you'll see it was a, such a simple thing the response was when you start to feel the suffering of other people as your suffering and the joy of other people is your joy that's how you know you're making progress that's how you know that you're advancing spiritually and i've just held that since then that it, you don't have to be a monk you know you could be anyone you could be a business person you could be a politician you could be an educator you could be someone who simply is at home you may not have a, like what we would call a traditional job you could be of any age any race any gender any of those things but if you start to feel not that if you start to feel this is the biggest lesson we have to put ourselves in a position to feel so connected to people in this world so connected to nature so connected to our deep inner selves that the suffering of anyone else we feel as our own suffering and the joy of anyone else we start to feel as our own joy and to me that's the biggest lesson that's for me the the ultimate conclusion and end of all spiritual practice my heart becomes so overwhelmed with love and connection that I feel desperate to alleviate the suffering of others because I feel it as my own suffering. I become so desperate to make sure everyone is feeling great joy because that is truly my own joy. I think that's the the biggest lesson. <laughs> that's an incredible lesson. It's a beautiful lesson. Um, it makes me think too, as you're explaining this, to take the sorrows of someone and adopt them as your own, to take the happiness of someone and adopt that as your own, and not just cherry picking this person or that person, yeah. but everyone, everyone and anyone. And that's where it gets even more interesting. Yeah. And that's the real work, right? Yeah. If someone hates me and my natural reaction is to hate them, how can I transform that and actually love them? Right? I think I truly believe that, that everything that in this world is either an act of love or it's a call for love. And I have to be able to see that even in the most testing and trying circumstances. Yeah. Maybe someone who's completely like I grew up in a very run downtown, um, very working class, literally divided by a railroad track. And sometimes I'd find myself on the wrong side of the tracks. And, you know, there were people who they were racist. I mean, I got into so many fights as a young young man, mm -hmm. young boy. But, you know, soon enough, I was able to become friends with those very same people who hated me because I didn't meet their hate with hate. You know, I just, not that it's any virtue of my own. It was just how I, I'm kind of wired that way. You may hate me, but I don't hate you. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to understand what's going on here. And when you do that, it's a big task. That's why I say there's no there's no enlightened people. There's no perfect people. It's just perfect moments and these enlightened moments. And you're not always going to make the mark. <laughs> you're going to fall mm -hmm. short very often. Mm -hmm. But it's the striving to meet the mark that's the most important thing. And that's what you know. What I see at the Pollination Project with our change makers. Are there better ways that people could do things? Maybe, perhaps. But this person is putting their heart into this thing. They see a problem and they're not just sitting there complaining about it. They want to do something about it. They're being active. They're actively participating in a solution. And um, it's profound. It's, it's deeply profound to see what, what people are doing. Just mm -hmm. moved by the love that they have for seeing the world a better place. You know, it's very easy to stand against something. Mm -hmm. It's far harder to stand for something. Yes. And so that's what we see every day at the Pollination Project is people who want to take a stand for something that they believe in that will make a difference in the lives of others and will make their communities better. Inspiring.
It's really inspiring. Thank you for doing the work that you do. Thank you for sharing all of this, AJ. It's been really, really inspiring. You don't, you don't have to thank me. I'm thankful that I get to do this sort of stuff. I, it's an honor for me, actually. It's, it's a real, real, um, real honor to be able to be of service to people who are really doing something. I'm just a small part in people's journey of greatness, but just feel deeply honored. Well, and I mean, I, I have to say, I feel I feel honored just hearing what you're sharing, you know, um, and and I, I think what you have to offer with with what you share um, will inspire and strengthen so many people. Um, and, you know, and these are the stories that need to be shared to to wake people up, you know, yeah. um, because you don't know what you don't know until, you know. You don't know what you don't know until you know. You know, you have to become aware, right? This is yeah. what we're talking about. You have to become aware. Yeah, so and in, in, in that I would say thank you so much for helping all of us become more aware now. Um, thank you. Yeah, just thank you so much. What a pleasure, what a treat. Thank you for rocking it like you do and inspiring us to do the same. If I can be of some service to people in their journeys, I, it's the honor is all mine. I'm extremely grateful. If it inspires people, you all inspire me. And uh, let's continue, let's create an inspiration vortex. We just keep inspiring one another and keep pushing forward to create a world that we can all be proud of, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, AJ. My deepest gratitude to you. Thank you. Thank you. Produced by Awareness Ties, Pollinating with Purpose, featured AJ Dahia, interviewed by Ali McGuire, podcast intro track by Thavius Beck, episode soundtrack by Soul Rising. Thank you for listening to Aware Now. To read our magazine, watch our broadcast, or join our community, be sure to visit our website, awarenessties.us.